We welcome you back into another edition of the brownzone.com zone coverage podcast. My name is Andy Bullbarch, and I'm joined by Scott Petrek, a very busy man these days, the Browns beat reporter with the Chronicle Telegram, the Medina Gazette, and of course at brownzone.com. Scott, I thought this was supposed to be the off-season, partner. This has become nothing but an off-season for you. Is boy, I mean, the fire just began to spread wildly right around, I don't know, 6, 7 o'clock on Sunday night with a decision we were expecting with Freddie Kitchens being fired. And then, boy, things really matriculated very, very quickly over the next 48 hours as well. Scott, I think you and I both thought that we'd be talking about a change or two, but Boy, nothing of this magnitude. I agree with you completely, Andy. Um, Freddie Kitchens made all the sense in the world. He, you know, Bronze went six and ten. He had issue upon issue that didn't look like it would get better. You know, um, we talked about it. Did he show that he could learn from his mistakes? And I was really skeptical about that. And obviously, the Hasms felt the same way. And if you feel that way, it makes sense to move on, especially from a guy who's had no experience as a head coach. But the parting of the ways with John Dorsey, which is a real nice way to say it, right? They, they said, hey, you can no longer be our GM. Will you stay in a reduced role? And he said, uh, no, I signed up to be a GM. So it's not exactly a firing, um, but it's an oustering, as I've been calling it. That was a shocker to me. And you did hear rumblings. You know, Sunday in the press box, in Cincinnati, you're seeing people walk around. The vibe wasn't great. Um, you know, you talk to people inside the personnel department. It's like, here, maybe there's something happening here. But, you know, John Dorsey was part of the statement when they fired Freddie Kitchens on Sunday night. John Dorsey was supposed to talk to the media Tuesday. So you got the sense that, okay, I think it, there's going to be some stability here. I don't think we're going to have a massive change. And then as Tuesday went along, it's like, nope, massive change is coming, and John Dorsey's out. Um, and you, correct, if you just change the head coach, that's significant enough. But when you change your head coach, you change your GM, which will likely lead to more changes inside the personnel department. That's another blow-up of the organization. And you know, Jimmy Haslam, the owner, so I'm sure he's sick of having his words thrown back at him but, you know, and I care, you lose track of all these different changes, but at some point he said, we're not going to blow it up, right? He said that in training camp, and they blew it up at the end of the season, if not before. So this is another blow-up. It feels like a start-over. and Maybe it's not because the roster is in a different spot than it has been in the past, uh, but when you change such two such big pieces of your organizational structure, um, it does feel like starting over, and it, we've been here with the Haslam's before. You know, I got right in front of me a list of all the people they fired, and it's a ton of people they fired. They've only been here since 2012, and they fired five head coaches and five head of football operations, right? They're not all GM titles, but Joe Banner, Sashi Brown, Ray Farmer, now John Dorsey, not fired, but have moved on from these guys. That's a ton. Right? I mean, they've been here like eight years, and they fired five on each side. have gotten rid of five on each side. Um, and you wonder why there's no stability, no continuity, no ability to win. And, yes, you know, it's chicken or the egg. They lose, so they fire guys. But I think you can also make an argument. They fire guys, and that leads to more losing. 
it's very, very tough to dispute that. And, you know, I think it's fascinating that the whole Freddie thing seems like it's old news now, right? Last week we talked about that, seemed like it was imminent. There wasn't much he could do against Cincinnati to save his job. They end up losing by 10 to a team they really have no business losing to. But that seems like it was so long ago now. Like that has all of a sudden become secondary. And I think when we had talked about criticizing Freddie Kitchens, and there were a number of different ways of doing that, it became a conversation surrounding, hey, you know, is there a way of keeping him by maybe, I don't know, for lack of a better term, neutering the head coach and taking the play calling duties away? Is there a way of keeping him on board where he's still the coach but doesn't have as much power? Can you transition some of that? into what went down with John Dorsey because effectively if he's the GM and you're asking him to take on a reduced role, you can kind of compare some of those things, can't you? I mean, if you're asking him not to make as many personnel decisions, decisions, is that kind of what you think the Haslam's were trying to do with him or do you think that he was going to be gone one way or the other? No, I, I think that's an interesting I think it's an interesting point. And, you know, Jimmy Haslam did not give a whole lot of insight into why he felt the need to ask John Dorsey to take a reduced role. You know, we talked to Haslam on Thursday. But there were glimpses, and you talked to people behind the scenes. And I would say, probably at the top of the list of why they felt a need to ask him to take a diminished, diminished role, is that he was in charge of the Freddie Kitchens hiring. And that was the first time that the Haslams have really stepped back and let someone else run the search. Not only run the search, but make the hire. And they had to approve Freddie Kitchen, so it was an organizational organizational decision. But John Dorsey was driving that bus. He set up the interviews, right? He was in the he led the interviews. He wanted Freddie Kitchens to be his coach, and the Haslam signed off on it. And for it to be such a disastrous hire, right? And that's I think that we've all or most of us have come to view Freddie Kitchens one year as that. You know, they didn't live up to expectations. He was not what he was supposed to be. His play calling stunk. I mean, we can go down the list of what was wrong with Freddie. So you can pin a lot of that responsibility on John Dorsey. So that's number one. And then, well, man, are we going to let this guy run another coaching search? If not, how do we handle that? Um, and then, you know, I think Jimmy Haslam, you know, I talk about insight into why they wanted him to take a diminished role. We talked yesterday about how the GM role is invo- evolving. And it's not just a scout anymore. And you have to welcome analytics. And you have to be more of a, I don't you know, he didn't use the word uh, CEO um, moniker, but I'll use it. You have to be a leader of the organization. And it's not just talent evaluation. And they felt, it seems to me, felt like John Dorsey was just kind of a glorified scout, right? Yes, he could identify talent, but we can have him be a player personnel guy as opposed to a GM. GM needs to stand in front of the media. He needs to direct the building. And I think they felt John Dorsey had shortcomings in that area and maybe isn't the best communicator, and maybe isn't the best leader. Maybe he didn't do enough to help Freddie Kitchens become the coach they wanted him to become or needed him to become. And those are all can all be valid issues. My question is, or my opposition is, if John Dorsey took the roster from 0-16 to 7-8-1 in one season, and then where a whole lot of us thought they should be in the playoffs, and the reason they're not in the playoffs this year isn't from a lack of talent. And 
talent acquisition is so important in this business, right? It's right at the top of the things you need to be successful. Then can't you live with some of the other shortcomings and maybe give him one more year in that role to see if, with a better coach, this team can reach its potential? Um, that's how I feel. I, I felt like John Dorsey deserved another year, and I thought the roster would continue to be better. And if, as an organization, you find the right coach, don't let John Dorsey hire another coach, but find the right coach. Tell them they have to work together. Um, I, I think the organization could have moved forward, and it can move forward with a new GM and a new coach, depending on who they hire. Uh, I just didn't feel like it was necessary to do that. And then you take a really experienced football guy out of your organization. You probably take a couple of his underlings. I don't expect Alonzo Highsmith to be back. Elliot Wolf may or may not return. It depends on who the next GM is, right? There's always turnover when that happens. It just felt like an unnecessary, you know, reboot. And I know the Haslam's would argue with me because they felt it was necessary to ask John to take that diminished role. Um, but when you to get back to your original question, yeah, when you try to take something away from somebody who has that power, they're not going to accept it, right? There's not a whole lot of guys in this world who know they can walk away, know they will continue to get paid for the next two years. I'd assume John Dorsey is going to be paid. I know he's going to get paid. and get two years left on his contract. You know, why say, yeah, you know, I'm going to become head of pro personnel when I was just a GM. And I was a GM in Kansas City for four years, and I took a terrible team there and turned it into a perennial playoff team. Uh, It's a blow to your ego, and it's something, I think if you're John Dorsey, you look around and go, what have the Haslam's done? My resume is way better than theirs. Even what has Paul D. Podesta done? You know, the chief strategy officer. He spent 20 years in baseball. What's he done in the NFL? And I have this resume. And I think it'd be hard for anybody to take that step back. And I understand why John didn't do it. And I still question why the Haslam's asked him to do it. It would be really interesting to hear what John Dorsey has to say about all this. I know that we've not heard anything from him since. It may not for a while, but if it's true, what you were stating about how maybe the Haslam's didn't feel like John Dorsey was communicating or was at the forefront of the building, I I think that's certainly something you'll hear a lot of owners say. I think it's something easy to fall back on. Not saying it wasn't the case here, but... By all accounts, it seems like Paul D. Podesta, who you just referenced, is going to be a big part of the decision-making process moving forward. Now, if I'm not mistaken here, Scott, he does a lot of his business out on the West Coast. And if he's the guy helping the Hasms along the way lead the charge here and communication was one of their big qualms with John Dorsey, <laughs> how in the world does that play then with Paul D. Podesta, who's not even in the building? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, he lives in the San Diego area. You know, he's in and out of Berea. He attends, I think he attends every game. I see him all the time at games, and then you see him intermittently in the building. Um, that's why, you know, the, the Haslam's and people in the organization say he will not take on a larger role in the football department. He remains the chief strategy officer where he tries to set a path for how the organization is going to proceed and he helps the GM, and he helps the coaches. And, you know, he leads that analytics department, which is in, you know, in the building in Berea. But if you're not going to be here, you can't have an increased role. And I'm not sure he's qualified to have an increased role, you know, as far as being the actual guy that picks players or, you know, 
like Sashi Brown did, right? Um, so that's a good point, and I think there is a buffer there or a limit to how much influence he can have, especially on a day-to-day and with maybe throughout the whole organization. I think he has plenty of influence with the Haslam's, and we've seen that. And what proves it is, number one, the Haslam's don't keep people for years upon years, right? If you look at the GMs and coaches that we talked about that they've moved on from, Hugh Jackson is the longest tenured guy at two and a half years. Well, Paul DePodesta is starting year four in like two days. He was hired, I think, January 5th, 2016. So for him to make it four years shows to me the, how much the Hasms value his opinion. And I have no doubt that he is a genius. And I've talked to Paul, and I really like talking to him. And I think when you have that intelligence, and you make good points, and you have success in baseball, which obviously is a parallel track to football. Um, I think the Haslam's look at him and go, man, this guy knows what he's doing, and he knows what he's talking about, and he can help us get to where we need to go. And they may be correct, and he might be the guy. And I think that's, if you're a fan looking for things to cling to for hope, it's that Paul DePodesta has more say than he did a year ago, or even a month ago. And maybe his intelligence will help the Haslam's make the right hire. Now, Paddy Podesta is setting up all these coaching interviews, right? He's picking, he's identifying the candidates, and he's working on the logistics. It's going to be Paddy Podesta, Jimmy Haslam, J.W. Johnson, who's the executive vice president. He's a Haslam son-in-law. And then Chris Cooper, who's, I think his title is vice president of football administration. He's a salary cap guy. Those are going to be the four guys in the search committee. So it's a small group, and we can argue whether or not there's benefits to having a small group as opposed to a lot of different voices. Dee Haslam will be involved in the hiring. Jimmy said he would listen to all the people when it came down to making the decision that who they're going to hire. Um, but I do think it's important to note, of those four people that are going to be on the plane going to see, you know, they went to see Greg Roman last night. They had Mike McCarthy in Berea Thursday morning. Eric Bieniemy Friday afternoon in Kansas City. Then they're going to go to Robert Salah and the 49ers over the weekend, those four guys, there's not a whole lot of football experience there. You know, Paul DeBedest is four years in football. He played football at Harvard. Um, Chris Cooper is more of a lawyer negotiation guy. J.W. Johnson's not a football player. Jimmy Asim's not a football player. So I'm not saying you need to be a football player or a former player or a former GM to pick the right coach because so much more goes into it. But I think it is worth noting you took when you took John Dorsey out of the equation, and you took Alonzo Highsmith out of the equation, and maybe Elliot Wolf to some degree out of the equation. There's a lot less football background in those meetings, and whether or not that is good or bad, I think it is relevant. It's absolutely relevant, and I think moving forward, it's certainly fair to bring up the question: How do you think their past and their track record affects them? in a process like this, and here's why I asked that question. One guy decided he did not want to interview with the Browns, and I get it for different you know reasons. Matt Rule, Baylor head coach, has mm-hmm. been tied in with some other jobs, but he said no thanks. And you sit there for a second you think about that. A college head coach said, nah, you know what, I'm good. I see other opportunities that are going to be, at least on the surface, a bit more fruitful, and maybe you get a bit of a longer leash at some of these other places. And to be fair, 
nobody knows for sure if that's 100% the case. But again, I think it's fair to bring up that you have to wonder to some degree, this does affect them moving forward because I think people look at this from the outside looking and you think about some of the names you just brought up, Biennemi, Roman, McCarthy, and the list goes on. These are guys you'd like to think are going to be offered at least one, if not two different positions, you know, throughout the course of this offseason. And you have to wonder where that Browns job will rank amongst the other positions that they're up against. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Um, One of the things that's in the Browns' benefit is there's fewer openings this year. Right, Washington hired Ron Rivera. The Browns have an opening. The Giants have an opening. The Panthers have an opening. And it looks like the Cowboys will have an opening. Now, who knows if a team loses in the first round of the playoffs, could the Vikings pop open? Perhaps. But we've seen, you know, Black Mondays where there's eight jobs, and then it's a free-for-all. So it's smaller. So if all these coaches, in fact, want head coaching jobs and are willing to take any of them available, then the Browns should get one of their top four or five guys, right? And whether or not there's four or five qualified candidates, we could argue that. Um, but I it is significant that, or it's noteworthy at least, that Matt Rule said, no, I'm good. Um, you know, he has ties to New York. He may wind up there. He may stay at Baylor. Maybe he looks at Baylor and goes, you know what, I really like it here. Cleveland's a mystery. Do I want to go there? Is that where I want to start my head coaching career? And it's certainly understandable that coaches would have doubts about that. And if you're weighing two options, whether it's the Giants, the Panthers, the Cowboys, or even if it's, you know, I'm going to hang on one year and see what happens next year. That's certainly something that I would think coaches would consider. Um, you know, I mentioned Robert Salah, and I may be butchering his last name, but he's a defensive coordinator for the 49ers, and he's going to interview this weekend. Well, Kyle Shanahan's the coach in San Francisco. Kyle Shanahan spent one year with the Browns and then famously put a, together a PowerPoint presentation to show the Haslam's so they would let him out of his contract after one year to show what a disaster it was and give all these reasons to let him go, mostly because of Ray Farmer, the GM, and how he was, you know, he interfered too much. We know about the text, you know, the texting the sidelines that got Ray suspended. Um, the interference to go to Johnny Manziel when Brian Hoyer was winning games and how that just hung over the organization for all of 2014, even when they were 7-4 and four and headed, apparently headed to the playoffs. So that's Kyle Shanahan's experience with the Browns. So don't you think he brings that up with Robert Salah and says, hey, you might want to think twice about going there, you know? So I do think that's a backdrop to all of this. And if you're Mike McCarthy, you have to be convinced that this is the right spot. You know, if you're Josh McDaniels and you know you have one more chance to be a head coach, and that's probably it because you already flamed out with Denver and then you backed out of, the Colts job a couple of years ago, do you want to spend that on the Browns? And it's a legitimate question. You know, Jimmy Haslam said he's confident in the the list of guys they put together. He believes it's an attractive job given the fan base and the interest in the town and the young roster and Baker Mayfield. But when it comes, you know, in it's a big picture, I kind of agree with him. Yeah, somebody's going to want this job, and it's not a bad job. But on an individual case case by case basis i don't think it's a slam dunk and i think any one of these guys can sit in a room with the haslams and walk out and go eh, 
Maybe not. Especially if the stable Giants want to hire me, right? Or the Panthers with the new owner who kept Ron Rivera for a bunch of years. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely worth mentioning and worth noting. And it will, some, it will be something to keep an eye on. Because we've been through so many of these coaching searches. In the back of my head is the 2000, you know, they all run together, but 2014 search where Joe Banner had a bunch of candidates. In the meantime, he and Mike Lombardi are fighting. They wind up settling on Mike Patton after, you know, he might have been the ninth guy they interviewed. And then a month later, Banner and Lombardi were both fired because of how dysfunctional the search process was. So I don't think the search process will be dysfunctional. I, I do think they have it streamlined. I think Paul DePodesta will do a good job with that. And Jimmy hasn't talked about the process is better, the discipline is better. My point is they might have to go to their fourth or fifth choice depending on how the first three go. Maybe the first three take other jobs. Maybe they get turned down because of the history of firing coaches after a year. Yes, it's great you get paid, but it's a, it's a mark against your resume um, when other teams look at it, right? Man, he only lasted one year in Cleveland. He only lasted two years in Cleveland. So I think all the prospective candidates will definitely have to take all that, all that history into consideration. One more name to throw out there, and I know that this was thrown out there at the press conference with Jimmy Haslam yesterday. How much validity do you think there is to the rumor about Urban Meyer? I know that's been discussed throughout the course of the week. How much validity do you think there is? I mean, I think obviously there's certainly some interest there, but how realistic do you think that particular possibility is? I don't think it is. And I think there might have been some confusion on if you listened to the press conference yesterday, how it went down. But I'm sitting there, how you know, eight feet from Jimmy Haslam, whatever, and I've talked to other people inside the building. And when Jimmy Haslam says, right now our focus is on hiring someone with NFL coaching experience, that means that was his way of politely saying we're not interested in Urban Meyer. That's how I took it. That's how people I know took it. And I thought he was clear on it. And when he got asked about it again, he said almost the same exact sentence. And then he said, I think I'm making myself clear. So, you know, you can never rule anything out. And maybe if the first couple of guys turn him down, maybe then they turn to Urban Meyer. But I don't he's not on their list of candidates and they have a pretty big list of candidates, right? They have seven guys they hope to interview. And for him not to be on that list, I think it means that's not the direction they're going. And whether it's because it's urban Meyer or whether it's because they really do want to focus on somebody who's coaching the NFL. And I completely get that, right? That college NFL jumps a big deal. I don't think urban Meyer's a candidate. And I'll just say this. I agree with urban Meyer, not being a candidate. Uh, I have too many questions about him. You know, he's had to quit two college jobs for health concerns. The NFL is way more of a grind than coaching in college, right? There's not an easy game. There's not, man, you walk in and we have way more talent than the other team. And people can talk about the recruiting grind. It's not the same as an NFL season, which almost never ends, right? I mean, we talk about it. It doesn't end for the beat writer. It certainly doesn't end for the head coach. You know, they get about three weeks in June and July, and that's about it. You know, at the rest of the season, at the rest of the year, you go pretty hard. And then from July 20th to January 1st, you go incredibly hard. So I'm not convinced that he would be able to 
make it through that kind of ground grind health wise. Um, I don't think his quarterback running offense works in the NFL. And you can say, oh, it does for Lamar Jackson. Yeah, I don't think it's the same. And the Browns don't have Lamar Jackson. Uh, and I just think the intensity, when you watch, I would watch Urban Meyer coach Ohio State. And some fans probably loved it. You know, he's got his hands on his knees and he's bent over and he's, you know, he's, oh, he's exasperated when something goes wrong. You can't live and die on every play in an NFL game. You just can't. There's too many. The games are too close. There's 16 of them. I just don't think, personally, he has got the right makeup to coach in the NFL. Now, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe he'll go to the Cowboys. And when you hear that interest, the report about the Browns having strong interest, which they deny, to me that's Urban trying to get the Cowboys to look at him stronger, right? Because I know he likes that job. He said on the record that he'd be interested in that job. Um, maybe he'll wind up in Dallas and he'll prove me wrong. I just don't think he's cut out to be an NFL coach. Well, one more question here, Scott, before we wrap things up for today. There's just so much ground to cover with this process, and it's odd to say that because it happens every other year as we <laughs> as we talked about the very, very first few minutes of the show. But what kind of timeline do you think we're working with here? I know they stated that the head coach probably comes first and then the general manager. How long are we looking here before we know who the Browns' front office makeup will look like and the coaching staff will look like as well? Yeah, you know what? It's so hard to pin it down because they talked to Mike McCarthy yesterday. And Mike McCarthy is the only guy in this interview list that has won a Super Bowl as a head coach. To me, that brings instant credibility. He spent the last year you know, fixing his offensive system and tweaking things and studying analytics and preparing himself for a return to the NFL. They could hire him right now. Right now, as long as they've met the satisfied the Rooney rule, which they may have, you know, they could interview somebody else we don't know about. But for sure, they will meet it when they will satisfy the Rooney rule when they interview Eric Bieniemy, the Chiefs' offensive coordinator, Friday afternoon. So, as soon as that happens, they could hire Mike McCarthy. I get the sense that they want to be true to the process and interview more candidates than that. Um, but what if, if they fell in love with Mike McCarthy? Mike McCarthy said, hey, you know what? I don't want to drag this out. Let's finish this off. That could happen at any time. What I think is more likely is they go through the round of interviews, which must stretch into next week because guys like Brian Dayball, the Bills' offense coordinator, um, Kevin Stefanski, the Vikings' offense coordinator, they cannot interview until – after this weekend, because their team's playing playoff games this weekend. So therefore, it stretches into next week. Josh McDaniels is also on that list. I know NFL Network reported McDaniels is planning to do his interviews next Friday, a week from today. Well, that could be changed and moved up if the Patriots lose on Saturday. But if they don't, then you probably wait until at least next Friday to sit down with Josh McDaniels. And then, unless the coach is... Mike McCarthy, who's not on a team, or a coach for a team that's lost in the playoffs, then you have to wait for that team to lose in the playoffs. So this could go a while. Mike McCarthy would expedite it if that's their choice and they can agree. Um, he is my favorite of the candidates. I think this organization, given all the losing it's done, needs a or could really benefit from a coach 
who's had success and has a proven track record. And I think we've talked about this, Andy. With Freddie Kitchens, when he when the season started, we talked about him being a huge question. And as soon as they lost a couple games, we talked about, uh-oh, is Freddie the right guy? That doesn't happen with Mike McCarthy. They could go 0-5, and, and people shouldn't, and I don't think people would, call for his head. There's a comfort level. There's a stability to having someone with that kind of track record. And I think this organization could really benefit from that. And given the roster, and you add a Mike McCarthy, then you can go ahead and talk about playoffs in 2020. That's not out of the realm of possibility at all. So Mike McCarthy could happen whenever. If it's not Mike McCarthy, this could drag on. And then as far as the GM, I mean, you could see him announce at the same time, depending on how much influence the head coach has in the GM hire. Um, So I, I don't think that will be a lengthy process, but it's really hard to talk about, you know, to pin down the head coach. And I just talked about McCarthy to me, and I, and I would just want to get it out there before we wrap up to me, it's Mike McCarthy, Josh McDaniels, and Kevin Stefanski would be my three leading candidates. I mentioned all the reasons I like Mike McCarthy. Josh McDaniels is interviewed for this job before the Haslam's reportedly like him. I didn't get to ask Jimmy about it yesterday. I was trying to get the question and couldn't get it in. Um, so they have a history with Josh McDaniels. He apparently wants to come home again. He's ready to be a head coach after turning down, after leaving the Colts at the altar a couple of years ago. The question with Josh is, how does he feel about this organizational structure? Is he okay with three people reporting to Haslam? And the fact that Jimmy said yesterday that the GM will have say over the 53-man roster. That's something that Josh McDaniels might want, and could that be a deal-breaker? But he's definitely got to keep an eye on. And then third guy is Kevin Stefanski. He interviewed for this job last year. He was the second finalist to Freddie Kitchens, and by all accounts, the choice of the analytics department, which is led by Paul DePodesta. So it appears like he already has a guy in his corner. The Haslam's were in on the interviews last year, so they obviously liked him too. Um, doesn't have the resume that McDaniels and McCarthy does do. Stefanski's in his first year as an offensive coordinator. He'd been a quarterback's coach for a couple years before that. Young guy, I think he's 35, up-and-comer, but do you want to go with an unproven commodity compared to a McDaniels or a McCarthy or even an Eric Bieniemy who's been coaching for a long time or a Greg Roman? So those feel like the three guys to keep an eye on, um, but we'll see how it plays out with all the interviews. It'll be very fascinating over the next seven to ten days for sure, and it could even stretch out a little bit further than that. Scott, as always, a pleasure. Look forward to reading all of your pieces coming up in the next couple of weeks here, too, as the Browns get closer to making a final decision and getting things going with yet another brand-new regime. Sounds good. Thanks, Andy. Thank you, Scott. Again, that's Scott Petrek, Browns Beat Report with the Chronicle Telegram, Madonna Gazette, and of course, brownzone.com. That's going to wrap things up on today's edition of the brownzone.com zone coverage podcast for Scott Petrak. This is Andy Bullbarch saying thank you again for tuning in, and we will talk to all of you again next week.